And now, live from Studio One in Castlebar, it's the Jack McDonald Show. Hello, hello, hello. You're very welcome back to the Jack McDonald Show. Great to see you as always. We haven't been here in a, a couple of weeks, but no doubt, hopefully this programme will make up for it. A couple of great uh, people lined up. Uh, we have a guy from The Athletic, guy from The Journal, and a guy from prison. Uh, Jesse, we speak to Jesse a little bit later. You saw a clip there. Jesse is fantastic, and my God, does he have a story to tell. You spent 19 years in prison, and um, you're definitely going to have a, a, a story or two. Fantastic guy. Um, breathtaking insight into to some of the American prison system as well and um, just kind of the, the hectic, chaotic parts of his life that led him to spending what could have been up to 32 years in prison. Um, he got out there a few years ago. It's um, a lovely Friday afternoon as, as I come to you here in the studio um, here on the, on the west coast of Ireland and the west coast of Ireland does have a few things to offer including the Galway races which is maybe one of the excuses I can use as to why you haven't seen me in a couple of weeks. We had a phenomenal time at the races. Ladies' Day, the whole place was packed. I mean, sometimes you go out um, locally uh, on a Friday or Saturday night and genuinely you're in a nightclub and there's like two other people and you're thinking, what the hell am I doing here? Why are those other two people here? And why isn't this place packed? Um, And so you can start to feel like, has the whole country just gone into some kind of Love Island coma? But I can tell you there were just people aplenty. The, the streets were lined on um, on Thursday and, and I gather pretty much all the days it was very busy. It's funny as well, you know, obviously once you go to the races, even on the way there, people who are telling you, no, I'm not betting, don't get involved in that stuff, I don't like it. Immediately they land and you're like, oh, where's Keith? And you just see him over haggling with the bookies uh, and coming back with about six different totes, four to one on that, six to four on Emperor's Horse, all this different stuff. Uh, and then inevitably, a few people have some great wins. friend of mine won big money, about a hundred quid on like a, a euro or two of a bet. I can't remember what it was, but um, the odds were incredible. Um, he might have put a fiver, fiver on something like that. I had put a euro on that horse and felt like an absolute idiot, you know, too much on the losers, not enough on the winners, typical. But then you have the, then you have that friend, of course, at the end of the race who is going um, to try and recoup all their losses. They're there with their betting slip going, please, come on, come on, come on. And halfway through the race, it becomes evident that their horse isn't first or second or even in the general pack. Their horse has gone back to their hotel. Their horse is fucked off. It's not coming in at all. And they're going, please, this will recoup everything. This will solve. This will solve it. Fantastic event, though. And it has... Um, unfortunately spurned an interest in gambling. I've been looking at all those like, you know, different tipsters on Patreon and they all kind of sell you the sun, moon and stars. Uh, you know, I'm I'm the best gambling. I'm the, I'm the best gambler in uh, Mas- North Macedonia and I've got 15 points return on the last 32 Sundays in March. And you're going, okay, I'm sold, mate. So I've um, dabbled in a few of those and have a few quid on Rory there as well. It's in the short term, it is definitely cheaper than a holiday. In the long term, it is definitely not cheaper than a holiday. But, um, you know, something to do for the summer. Earlier this year, the former Barcelona footballer Gerard Piquet debuted his latest business venture, a five-a-side with 
a different twist. The league featured a radically different approach to professional football, focusing on entertainment rather than strict football. Still in its infancy, the league has attracted millions in sponsorship, in viewers and in eyeballs. To take us through some of this bizarre, unique world, I'm delighted to be joined by an Irish man who has spent the last couple of months keenly observing the league. Dermot Corrigan, La Liga correspondent with The Athletic. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, Jack, how's it going? Uh, just to, to say there, di- didn't spend that much time keenly observing it until I got uh, asked to write the story about it. I uh, was kind of sceptical about the whole idea, I'd have to admit, um, from, from the start and hadn't been watching it, but then, you know, was was asked to, to write, start to talk to some people and research it and it was, was super interesting and it surprised me. Um, yeah, more, yeah, more keenly, more keenly, certainly than myself. I, it's one of those things where you kind of, when it first came up there a couple of months ago, I meant to keep abreast of it because it was an interesting development across so many, you know, different things, be it business, sports, the whole influencer world. I was kind of captivated by all of the paradigms, but because it's so Spanish focused, I had lost touch with it. And it was only that I went Googling and I found your story and a few small pieces around the place, but maybe we should get into it from that angle the influencerfication of sport has kind of taken over you know we see it uh, with boxing um with with football in this regard with a lot of sports they're kind of being shaken up and this certainly is one of them yeah for sure like the whole the whole idea can pk is um you know already while he was still playing for barcelona until even before he, he retired uh, last november or so he had become friends with some of the most popular influencers in in Spain. Um, had he was kind of quick to realize kind of how how popular these guys are, how many young football fans follow football based on people who are streaming over Twitch or live on YouTube or or over different way, ways over the internet. And he'd already done a couple of deals like to to show when Leo Messi went to to Paris Saint Germain. PK and Ibai Llanos, who's kind of one of the biggest Spanish streamers, uh, actually between themselves bought the rights to show league on football, like Messi's games for Paris Saint-Germain at the start. The only way you could watch them was by watching them on, on these guys' Twitch channels. So pk has been kind of ahead of the game there on that. And Do you think he was he them, was doing that with a view to kind of getting an audience for this, or it was just he was already on the cutting edge of it? I, I think he, he's just a smart guy that's interested in these type of technologies and how, kind of how... How these how they mesh like the links between technology and and business and and football it wasn't that he had this the king's league idea in his head i think it just kind of evolved from the conversations that he'd been having like you know had a chance to have a quick chat with him at the stadium before the the tournament i know we've also spoken to other people who work at his his cosmos company and it just kind of came from a, a lunch that they had the pk and eva Janos and other executives from from pk's company had lunch together we're kind of spitballing we're talking about Kind of ideas that we've heard like around the Super League as well about how you know young people don't watch 90 minutes of games everybody not just young people tend to be uh, on their phone during games or, or looking at double screening all, all that type of stuff and they were just thinking about how they could make football more interesting or make a, a new type of football which might be more interesting to younger people and leverage the the fame that PK has the amount of followers that that Eva Janos and the other streamers that they knew had, and the kind of context also that, that PK has within the football world. I wonder what the secret ingredient here is, because 
obviously it must be to an extent in the execution I'm thinking of people like that guy Spencer FC over in England who had already done a, a similar thing uh, as I mentioned kind of this misfits boxing like the idea of taking a traditional sport putting some influencers and making it more accessible on YouTube or Twitch isn't actually that new but somehow some of the execution really kind of ignited the fans yeah, like when, when I was talking to Pika, he said that the most important thing is that it's actually a real competition, that it's not it's not a joke kind of league where, you know, they have got people like Ronaldinho to come and play a game, Pirlo, a, Aguero is captain or, or is president of a team he's played as well. Chicharito. But it, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. But it, it's actually the that people take it, the people involved in it take it quite seriously, that they really want to win. So they have, they've picked up a lot of players, like semi-pro players from the, fourth, fifth, sixth tiers of, of Spanish football. So guys who also have have full-time jobs as well, but who, you know, take it seriously and train and play, maybe train three or four times a week, play with their team at the weekend and get paid, you know, like 150 euros a game, that type of, of a salaries that these guys would get who, you know, would have maybe been in the youth systems of Barcelona or in the youth systems of Espanol or that as kids, but not quite made it to the top. So for these guys, it's like an opportunity to... to for, become famous to further their careers to win something and they take it it's not a it's not just a kick around at all it's it's um it's a serious competition that they want to win then there are like from the fans there are all these crazy elements to it, like that they the presidents or the coaches can play a card from the like in a like in a it's like a willy wonka a kind game. of card isn't there <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like hey you can you know just get yourself a penalty or you can just remove one of the other opposition players or the the craziest thing is there's a big catapult that that throws a big giant dice out onto the pitch. And if it rolls a four for two minutes, it's four against four. Or if it rolls a two for two minutes, it's two against two. So if it rolls a one, it's just one against one. And that's, that is a gimmick. Mm. Like, there's no getting around it. It is a gimmick. But also you can see from when I was at the stadium watching it, that the, the teams have actually worked out tactics that if it's three against three, then when they have the ball, then they swap out their keeper very fast. And an outfield player comes on, throws on the keeper's jersey because he has the, the technical ability to, to maybe score a goal or to set up a goal. And then as soon as they lose the ball, the, the actual keeper rushes on. They make it because there's rolling subs, like in a six-a-side at home. Um, so while there are, it's kind of that mixture of, there's a kind of computer game element to it or a, even a fancy role-playing game element to it, you, you could say. But that's mixed with players who actually really want to win. And the teams who have done well in the competition have gone on to win it. There's kings and queens leagues now that both the men and the women are the ones who are maybe... Uh, less worried about getting Ronaldinho in to play for just one game and more worried about like finding, you know, very good, recently retired La Liga players um, or else top Catalan kind of semi-pro league players to, to put onto their teams and guys who are willing to, to go along with the, the zany elements of it as well. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and a good point to hit on the idea of all these guys in Spain. And certainly if you go on holidays, you see just how much they love and adore football. And you'll see 23-year-olds on 11-a-side pitches at 2 o'clock in the day competing their absolute heart out in a way that maybe 14 or 15-year-olds in this country kind of decide, I think I'm over the hill. It's time to become an electrician or whatever. Um, you, you mentioned of course, 
just how low the salary started. And in your article, you say that um, apparently they were paid just 74 euro per game at the beginning of it. So it's not like they started on absolute riches, but this kind of progression of salary possibly does mean that there is an avenue that if somebody doesn't make it in Barcelona or Real Madrid or even at the upper echelon of La Liga, that maybe there's still somewhere for them to go, provided the salary goes up a small bit, as basically a professional footballer and arguably maybe an even more enjoyable job than the strict nine to five of professional football. Yeah, I like I don't think when they started off like PK and the guys who were running it, when they started off they expected it to, to do as well as they did. Like PK's very smart, he's very smart people around him and they knew there was something there that, that might work that might be fun to do as well. <clears throat> Quite quickly they, they realized that they could make money out of it. They got um or I'm not sure if they've made money yet, but they realized that there was money to be to be raised. Like they got a lot of big Spanish brands involved, um, like Mao, the the beer, uh, Burger King or McDonald's, Burger King, I think. I, I, I remember he described, he said that because we have an 18 to 25 year old fan base, we are sexy to brands. So that's how they <laughs> see themselves. Yeah, that's that PK, he's, he's a good interviewee as well, for sure. But yeah, like they didn't think they were going to make that much money. So they put the, the money kind of low for, for the players to be able to make it affordable. Then it looked like they were kind of ripping them off to, to an extent because suddenly, like I'd say, they wouldn't confirm this to me, but um, the revenues for the Kings League are over a million for, for sure. Like they're, and they're heading, they're heading up all the time. So they have, they've rearranged it for, for next year. But it, it was kind of seen at the start as something that by rearrange, I mean, have, have improved them quite a lot um but the yeah it started off just as something that say you're playing for your local catalan team at the weekend it was just another thing that that you would you would do on top a bit of fun on top then as it quickly became kind of more serious it's something that you had to actually prepare for players started missing their games with their catalan teams there's some a uh, some players missed quite important like relegation battles and stuff for the teams which pissed off the the presidents of the, the clubs in barcelona and now for next year, you know, the players are going to earn quite a, quite a good bit more. So there's going to have to sign exclusivity contracts. So it's going to take uh, take players from the, the local leagues in, in Barcelona into the Kings League. And again, they Pique was saying that he expects that to raise the level of the the gameplay to have more technical, more better, just better players involved in it. And again, to to make it a more attractive product. But I wonder, is, is that the wrong way to go? You know, if they become too obsessed with finding the best footballers, you know, the most technically gifted footballers, and obviously you said they care a lot about the competition, but, you know, it, are the gimmicks why you, you've got younger people tuning in, that it's much more interesting to watch perhaps lesser footballers or some footballers who are perhaps over the hill competing against each other with big dice and Willy Wonka factory kind of uh, gimmicks rather rather than watching Wigan and Brighton, who are possibly, you know, a more technical, uh, you know, technical matchup, yeah, yeah. but way less interesting. Maybe so. I, I, again, I started off getting into this quite skeptical about, about the whole thing. When it started up last last year, um, like Javier Tevez, the, the La Liga president, called it a circus. Um, I wasn't, I didn't go that far, but I didn't, it was kind of vaguely interested in it, but not, not enough to really follow what, what was going on. You didn't buy a jersey. By, no, no, for sure. But people have done, like they already have merchandising for it, which in itself is, is kind of interesting. But I, I, the more I, when I just start to look, actually look into it and, and talk to some of the people who are involved in it and, and see what it's like, um, I think that the mix of the zany stuff, the zany stuff does draw people in and people want to just see what the hell is this kind of, but it's also like 
people have become again people younger than me um have become fans of certain players who who are involved in it um have built like an emotional attachment to you know they follow a team in it the same way as uh, as i follow everton or you know the irish team or, or whatever so it's it's like a a yeah, they want to have the best team possible. They want to win, and that that's going to push up the the, the standard of the league. Again, I don't think it's going to ever. I, I don't think it's ever going to be taking players even from the likes of Wigan or even from like a a championship team or a, a Segunda Division team in Spain. Is always well for the foreseeable future anyway. It, it's Kings League is not going to compete with 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 those four, four players, but it will do for for eyeballs, for fans, for sponsors. And Pika has big plans. Like they're they're launching in America next year. They're going to have a base in. And the games are played. Just didn't say, it, but the games are played in a in an old sports center by the beach in in Barcelona. And there's no fans at the games. There's a couple of people invited. There's the the, the technicians who who broadcast it and the presidents and their mates kind of. But there's maybe 200 people in the in the same. So everybody who's there, it's a, it's an online thing. Just happened to be in the Barca. Put the finals on in the camp now in the Barca stadium, and then there was. The second finals of the season were on at the Atletico Stadium here in Madrid when, when I went along. But he, even that is just is almost like a big ad for the the main product is is online is is stream. So yeah, they're going to go to to Mexico, set it up in Mexico for next year. We're going to have teams in Argentina, all the Spanish speaking countries. I wonder about that expansion though, because I was thinking, and I mean, perhaps it's an unfair comparison. But I'm sure you remember when X Factor was the biggest thing or Love Island or any of these kind of um, reality TV programs. And not only is it a big thing during the summer when everybody's tuning in, but then they decide, let's put it on in January. Let's put it on, um, you know, in November. Let's have it as many times as possible because fans love this and it becomes saturated. And then slowly people start to dip out. I was wondering, you know, uh, on this topic of expansion, do, will, is it possible that expansion starts to kill it because PK, who is integral to at least a part of it, can't be in Mexico, Spain and Germany at the same time? The same with people like Aguero. They, you know, um, there is scarcity among some of these players. I wonder about the expansion. Yeah, I think it will depend on the, the names of the people that get involved. Like Chicharito is already going to have a, is he, he's going to have a team in Mexico and he's like huge in Mexico. You know, one of the most famous players, people in, in Mexico. Aguero's lined up for the Argentino <coughs> League. Uh, Ronaldinho, when they go to, to Brazil, Neymar, who are, you know, mates of PK are lined up to be presidents for, for that. Whether it does happen or not, we have to see. But I I, I trust that the, there's a good bit of expansion that, that can be done. I think, like, they have plans to go to England. If you get, say, Rio Ferdinand has a team in England, Gary Neville has a team Charisma. Uh, I, th I think it'd be better if we had like Paul Gascoigne or someone like that, Paul McGrath, people who are, you know, characters. I don't know if, if Gary Neville um, would get a, a fan base. Uh, I I think you're wrong about that. Uh, I think that, that Neville has a lot of people who, who hang on his on his words in England, um, whether they're, they're right, he's not very popular in Spain, but um, if you do have the presence and if that's Guy Spencer wants you to get involved or similar people, I, again, I don't know who the the, the most famous streamers, football streamers are, are in England or gamers or whatever. But if they can get the right people involved, then I think it would do well. Yeah, you think there's a big future here? Yeah, I. the plans when they were talking about it was to have like Champions League, World Cups. And I, again, skeptical about it when it started off, didn't think it was, you know, worth much of my attention, mm. I guess. Was persuaded to go and, and watch it, talk to the people, write about it. 
and afterwards i like i don't think you know i'm not going to be i don't know how much of it i'm going to watch every sunday next year i still like traditional football i still watch like real betis against valencia um for sure and try and go to as many of the games as i can and see it live and all that kind of stuff is involved in in my job here i'm not going to uh become a king's league correspondent <laughs> i think it's it, it's it's fair to say but they, they wouldn't hire me to do it like it's not they get somebody younger who understands it better um who who probably would. has less experience journalistically but more of a kind of outgoing personality big followers that that seems to be kind of the heart of it is if you're a yeah. big person and a decent following to back it up that's probably what they're interested in for sure and even i could see myself as i was definitely one of the older journalists who, who was there covering it there were people who are much more savvy about using social media you know they were they were making their own little videos or not little videos making their own very good videos um taking advantage of of the opportunities that that were there in a, in a much quicker way than i would have so again it's like it's a it's something that if you come to it from a kind of a traditional media standpoint can be more difficult to understand at, at first but there are uh, there are lots of people out there who are interested in, in that type of a thing. Again, younger people, I keep, keep repeating it. There are older people who watch it as well, for, for sure. But uh, I think that I would a healthy skepticism is, is always a good thing. But I, yeah, I back it to succeed at least for, for a while more. Anyway. Yeah, certainly. It'd be very interesting. And if they come towards our shores, I would be very interested to see what it could do over here, even, you know, to, to rival the League of Ireland or something like that. I could do, think it could do massive numbers, but at least for now, we'll watch with keen eyes. Thanks so much, Dermot Corrigan, La Liga correspondent with The Athletic. That was fun. Now it's been a busy week in the news cycle, everything from free money to Ryan Tuberty uh, and to review all of that and even more, I'm delighted to be joined by Murish from The Journal. How are things, Murish? How's it going, Jack? Thanks for having me on again. All good. I mean, it feels a bit deja vu, doesn't it, to be talking about Tuberty again? Oh, I mean, yeah, but I, like, there was the second Grant Thornton review that came out this week. There's a review on top of a review on top of a review. Yeah. I mean, I'm so bored of this story, but the, the meat and bones of it, I suppose, is that the door has been closed finally on Tuberty coming back to our Yeah, team. and he almost closed it on himself because, I mean, as I said there, the second one came out, which didn't necessarily like tell us anything new like that we didn't know already. It mainly just confirmed what was said before. Um I mean, weirdly enough, the person, the auditor, um, uh, Paul Jacobs, he said that it was his hypothesis was that it was highly plausible that they did it to hide the uh, hide the, the payments. But that made no sense because, like, how can it be a plausible hy- hypothesis when in in reality, that's exactly what happened? But uh yeah, I mean, there was a lot of that, wasn't there? Couching language, yeah. and uh, you know, I don't want to cast aspersions, but if you're too blunt in reports like this, you open yourself up to all kinds of other attacks, and then a report on your report. So sometimes, even if you want to make a strong statement, you use soft words. I think totally. I think that's exactly what it is. I mean, uh, yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. Like the 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 first re- the first review was almost damning in the sense where like it was all new revelations i don't necessarily think that grant thornton wanted to make a big splash with this second one and i mean they totally didn't but tuberty as i said kind of stuck his foot in it by commenting on the matter he basically basically said something that uh kevin backhurst the new dg of rte didn't want him to say uh, and the only thing that he didn't want him to say 
And uh, therefore, Kevin Backer has made the decision there um, to not bring him back. And we also found out that he was going to come back. So, I mean, he, he literally stuck his foot in it and closed the door on himself. Yes, I mean, I just don't get this whole scandal, to be honest with you. Like, from everything I've heard about Tuberty, seems like a decent guy. Um, I always bring it back to the fact that there are people who drop bombs on innocent hospitals and stuff who are paid untold millions. And then there was this kind of frenzy whipped up about somebody earning 450 grand. It's a lot of money, fair enough, it's definitely a lot of money. But it's in completely in line with somebody of his expertise. Um, I did a TikTok clip which uh, enraged a load of people, but I was talking about how, you know, late night hosts in the States, I think Colbert's on 20 million, um, James Corden was on 6 or 10 million. Like, there, it is a high-paid, well-paid job, and... I, uh, yeah, t to me at least, Tuberty perhaps was a victim of a little bit of a mob, and um, I do wonder where, where that could all lead. Also, a lot of the reporting, I must say, was quite skewed in that it seemed to phrase it almost like everybody was outraged by Tuberty. And since then, the record has slightly been corrected that, at least from a lot of the people I've been speaking to, and, and a lot of these people would be kind of people in trades, builders, things like that, it's get as much money for as long as you can. You know, th this is a capitalist country at the end of the day. So, yeah, I don't know. What, what, did, what did you make of Tuberty over this whole uh, fiasco? I think him coming out and saying that the figures were correct in, for, based off of the second report was a little bit of a misstep from him. Um, he probably shouldn't have said anything about it, to be fair, um, and left to that that he was looking forward to coming back. Because um, the, the second report did say that him and his agent, Noel Kelly, didn't do anything wrong and they weren't in the wrong for this. However, in the report, it did say that RTE, RTE finance team were the ones in the wrong because um, because they basically, like in, in layman's terms, were able to get swindled so much. Um, and I mean, it works back to your point there. It, like if you look at a capitalist point, yeah, get as much money for as much as you like for uh, as long as you like. But um, when it does come to, I think, in the sense of public money and a taxpayer as well, uh, seeing that amount of money being told that this amount of money is being spent when it's actually this amount and even more than what they were told, that's where the anger will come from. Uh, people don't like paying tax in general and they definitely don't like paying um, more tax or not being told where that tax is going in the first place. Um, so I think that's that's where the difference is. The difference lies between uh, Stephen Colbert. He's certainly not without sin and you're you're completely right on that. I mean, he definitely, um, they weren't just missteps, they were complete errors. You see your salary in the paper and you go, I don't think that's what's in my Bank of Ireland account, um, he, but you never correct it. The funny thing about it is like he never, yeah, exactly that. He never came out and he corrected it. He never came out himself and corrected it publicly. Um, and then he also hasn't necessarily apologised for that either. And I, I mean, Communications 101 will teach you not to apologise because that, that then insinuates that you are to blame for it. Um, and to a certain extent, he isn't. Um, him and his his agent are able to make those deals. And it's within Orte's capacity, the finance team, as the, as the report said, um, to make sure that those deals are done correctly. But um, having, having a sense where it's like, you know, I didn't do anything wrong because it was someone else's fault. You, it, it did come across a little bit as, you know, I'm the good boy here and I should have my job back. Um, I mean, it, it's a... We
My point, though, will always be, you know, 450 grand. Oh, what, what an amount of money. I'm a, I'm a licensed fee payer, all this kind of stuff. You had all these people who are going to have their houses raided. I'm not paying. I'm a, you know, I'm a freedom fighter, all this kind of nonsense. And you go, right, 450,000 as a percentage of what RTE spent. If you were to get that back uh, in a, you know, a rebate from a license fee, you wouldn't be able to buy a banana with, you know, your share of that. Like, it was so minute. And... At the same weeks, I know we're kind of drudging into the past, but during the same weeks that reporting was going on, the back pages or kind of in the middle of the newspaper was talking about billions being wasted on a children's hospital that looks like, oh yeah, 3034, she will get around to it. We'll see. Hopefully now, who knows? Maybe we can treat a couple of kids. In the other papers as well, especially in the Sunday papers, they were reporting on um, some top level HSE members being paid millions um when like much less than the ceo and uh, i mean i think it was uh brian uh, stanley any of the, the chairperson of the uh, the the public accounts committee said that it was an rte-esque event and that they would have to look into it uh, and that's even more money even more public money fully public money that's being spent and I mean, going towards people who are necessarily kind of double jobbing in that sense, uh, which is a whole separate other matter. Um, I think it's much easier for like a member of the public to fully understand this situation because they can they can watch and listen to Ryan Tuberty. They see what he does for a job. They can hear what he does for a job. Whereas in a HSE event, not everyone is going to understand exactly what a consultant or a doctor does. So. Yeah, exactly. And it's easier to argue over a thousand euro than a million or a billion. People can comprehend those figures and they can kind of understand it. There's a face to to be put to it. But speaking of a thousand euro, there was a few people on Wednesday night who got themselves on thousands. I saw 42 grand as a figure, but like, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of Bank of Ireland cash. They were over the moon with themselves. I saw videos of people buying TVs. I think it was Blanchardstown. They were all queued up with big TVs. Now, unfortunately, they realized the next morning that you have to return that TV because you withdrew the money with your own name on your own account. Yeah, it was a weird situation. And I'll take a quote from Garen Noon, the, the TikTok star. He said... Balanama. Yes, exactly. He's a great Mayo man. But he, um, he said that uh, it proves that when Ireland knows that crime doesn't pay, they say, sure, fuck it, we'll still give it a go. And I thought that was a really interesting observation because like, that was exactly it. Like people knew that the bank would chase them for this free money, so to speak. Um, and in turn, that makes this free money, like quote, completely insufficient. Like it, it was never free. Um, but yeah, I, those lines, those cues as well, were just, it was bizarre. I mean, I was driving past the Bank of Ireland here in Castlebar at like 11 o'clock on Wednesday night, just bored driving around the place with a few friends. And there was like, I don't know, maybe 10 people outside. And I was thinking to myself, this very, it's a very strange scene here. You know, is there a few Pablo Escobars maybe? There's something slightly illicit or strange and they were all kind of looking a bit shady. And as it turns out, they were just a few of the, what seems to be thousands, if not tens of thousands, who at least gave this a go. And you do, to a certain extent, have to admire the shithousery of going, yeah, I'm going to take your money. Come get it back off me. Pretty much, yeah. That's that's kind of, it was like an up yours to the bank in a sense. Um, I mean, 
it was a weird one as well because like it so quickly dawned on people that oh god actually this isn't what i was expecting it to be but they still didn't necessarily care um, they were just going when when did home. you hear about it Murish? pardon when did you hear about the was it was it past the event or during it was, yeah, was it, it was the wednesday just night just around the event actually i was playing a five side match uh, over in ucd and a, fr- a friend of mine was like oh did you see the stuff with the banks and i was like what are you talking about it's like oh some glitches allowed people to take out a thousand euro out of their bank account when they don't have it and i was kind of like were you tempted no I, well i'm not a bank of ireland customer unfortunately but I, I i was thinking i i was thinking like well it's going to be linked to my name but is there a way around this now like and i was thinking then because there's so many people availing of this there must be some sense in it you know the the madness of crowds i was thinking there has to be something in it but alas Obviously, all those people seem to be chased up now. And it goes back to that classic thing of, owe the bank 10 grand, that's your problem. Owe them 10 million, that's their problem. If you really want to screw the banks in this country, get into property. (laughs) Totally. But I mean, I think it comes down to something that a colleague of mine, Carl Kinsler, said on News Talk this week. It's that people want to be a part of a movement. They want to be like involved in something. So... I think there were some people who fully knew that this would come back to bite them in the ass and that they would have a 1,000 overdraft fee. Now, luckily for them, actually, there's not going to be any additional fees to those customers um, because it was an error of the bank. But at the end of the day, there were some people definitely knowing that this would come back to haunt them and they just didn't give a shit. Yeah, well, and it goes back to the thing, of course, people want to be in a movement, but they also want to live like the rich and famous. And speaking of the rich and famous, Tyson Fury and his whole family are now um, reality TV stars, which is a move that very few of us, I think, saw coming. But strangely enough, it's quite befitting. Pretty much all of them, including their children, lend themselves very well to these reality television cameras. Tyson's kids, who only get the odd cameo, are hilarious. Uh, They're telling Tyson to fuck off at different points and all this kind of stuff. Uh, It is... It's nine episodes, and it is genuinely one of the best things I've seen on television all year. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting one because it's like Tyson Fury, his wife, and then six little Tysons running around the house. Um, it's It definitely speaks, like, the trailer of it, uh, his wife asks him, are you going to enjoy this? And he kind of looks at her being like, enjoy what? Because he, he feels there's not necessarily a purpose to his life anymore after boxing. Um, and that speaks to a lot of his dedication to the sport and things like that, too. Um, but, I mean, The Guardian, they gave a, a bit of a shocking review to it. They didn't like it. A set, a, it's The Guardian, I mean, exactly, you know? Exactly, yes. But they said, I hear they're not even a fan of this program. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, they said that uh, with those things to the kids, whereas you and I liked it and thought it was quite cute and a bit funny, um, he says that uh, the, the author of that review said basically that there wasn't enough of that and that every episode was kind of, spun or formatted around some sort of big event and i mean that's television <laughs> that has to be there has to that's be a, showbiz, a, baby. something that people want to watch at the end to see what happens um it was an interesting aspect of that life and i mean everyone knows the type of high life that he likes to enjoy as well which is always going to make for good television but seeing his whole family be like such 
huge characters in the house i can only imagine how tiring it could be for you or i to live in that house for about 10 hours never mind i i couldn't do it i genuinely don't think like and shockingly like so the star of this show really is paris tyson's wife because she very clearly holds the whole whole house down and uh, tyson is just three weeks after retirement and he's looking to become more of a, a kind of a house bird family man get involved he's taking the bins to the skip all of this kind of stuff and it makes for very good television but it's also clear that generally during fight camp that's not what he's doing he's often not even in the house but even if he is in the house um, I think there may be other people doing the day-to-day maintenance and so Paris very clearly has been taking on the role for numerous years of this sole caretaker of the home all these kids getting them to school some of them are screaming they're all kind of looking for their dad's attention and she I mu- it must be said is incredible um yeah she really just keeps the the show on the road and i i was saying to you marish there is a temptation i imagine that if your job generally is a stay-at-home mother and suddenly the television cameras come on the temptation i think would be to go oh no i'm not a stay-at-home mother i'm a business entrepreneur i'm an influencer and i'm tyson fury's manager you know to to inflate your linkedin almost whereas she's very raw and honest about her role and because of that she shines that much brighter Yeah, i think it speaks a little bit to his family as well and the character of like the whole family in general even the the father and the brother like they do have a little bit of a portion of this where they would give a bit of commentary and show how kind of big job crazy yeah exactly yeah and just show kind of how crazy the whole whole lifestyle is in general um but yeah like i mean it, it was quite obvious he has that genuine sort of persona where what you see is what you get um he's dedicated and hard working and and trains hard uh, that's part of the business. Um, but then the other parts of the business that, I mean, and, and weirdly makes for great watching and great viewing is him picking up the picking up the dog poo on a, on a walk. But, you know, not only picking up the dog poo, but asking a local, a local of Morecambe Bay if they have a carrier bag that he can pick it yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I think we see the high life. We see the private jets. We see the big houses and things like that from the the likes of the Kardashians and things. But you never see them walking their dogs. You never see them taking care of the kids, washing the dishes, things like that. I always joke with them. Um, I always joke when I'm watching movies. It's like, it's like, why do, why do we never see them just cook a home meal? You know, they, they're never washing the dishes. They're never doing something that has, or if they are, there's some other external meaning to it. Like, we, yeah, they've just had an affair and they're like cooking the dishes as they're about to smash the dish over his yeah, head or exactly. something. Yeah, exactly. And I, we never get to see that type of stuff. And seeing that sort of normality in 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 such a like exquisite sort of lifestyle, um, obviously obviously makes for a, a relatable viewing. But then seeing you know the way he is, the persona, the character, the type of person that he is, um, he's definitely going to. It, it does doesn't really make any sense that he'd be doing the dishes or picking up the dog poop. Yes, and I think it's it's genuinely well worth a watch. Nine episodes there on Netflix, um, and certainly it's probably the best fight content I've seen of the year. Speaking of rags to riches, a TikToker turned podcaster, her name is, I'm going to 
try and get this right, Bobby Altoff has been kind of on everybody's watch list and for you page, I think, over the last couple of weeks because she, out of nowhere, on one of the first episodes of her podcast, had Drake on. Now, Drake is not a person who really does media appearances and generally they're all quite um, pre-selected by himself and his team. So for a random person, um, for anybody really to have Drake on their podcast is shocking, but for a random person of almost no stature to have Drake was pretty much mind-shattering. She has had another couple of names like Little Yachty, um, Rick Glassman, and some you know pretty big American names. And so that was kind of the scene over the last couple of weeks. And she has now hit the headlines once again because she has subsequently pulled that podcast episode with Drake down. And there's now rumors about divorce and cheating and all this kind of real TMZ salacious stuff. So I know, you know, reality TV is your bag. Uh, oh, yeah, totally. I would love to be an entertainment uh, reporter. Please get me out of the news sphere. But, um, <laughs> but no, this is an interesting situation. It kind of plays into uh, playing the media, so to speak. Is, is it a case where she is trying to drum up a little bit more headlines? Um, I mean, you said it yourself there. She was almost a nobody. Uh, I've actually gone through her, t- her TikTok before purely for the sake of trying to find out who she is and where she came from. And there was a lot of like sort of young mother sort of uh, uh, content on there uh, before she started. Almost like an American Keelan Moncrief, I'd kind of say. And then it kind of turned into more podcast clips. And then there was this random episode with Drake. Um, I was saying beforehand, I think there's quite an external involvement maybe uh, with some sort of investment that maybe saw the persona that she was trying to have because there's this very kind of dry humor persona where she doesn't kind of plays plays dumb a little bit, tries to uh, get the get the people who are on the podcast to talk themselves into a situation uh, and we see that work successfully for a lot of people and it's an interesting interesting character to play i mean if we look at the the king of it louis thoreau he does it more on a journalistic basis but then on the opposite end of the scale for a more entertainment vibe it'd be like the the woman who does the chicken shop dates uh amelia love what's her name sorry amelia Whatever. Yeah, Amelia. She did, yeah, uh, yeah so yes. um, she's well known, and it's that kind of it's the office really, which is incredible. You know that Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant created yeah. this um, form of awkward comedy. I mean, obviously there were people who had done it before, things like Spinal Tap, but they really brought it to the fore with the Office in the UK. They sell that idea over to the Office in the US, which becomes one of the biggest shows ever. And it, I think it's that show that has spawned all of this kind of awkward humor. It's not my biggest. Um, favorite if I was to watch something a lot of it is almost like people who are unsuccessful comedians go no no I was trying to be awkward mm-hmm. what you didn't laugh no no I was that that's this is the bit yeah, you know I mean there was definitely that I think because there's such a lack of interviews with Drake and sit downs with Drake I think some people might have been a little bit excited to see like what he what he was wanted to say or talk on certain topics uh, but that just isn't Drake. He's obviously going to choose some sort of bit of fun. Him and Little Yachty did a thing a few years, maybe a few months ago, almost a year ago, I'd say, where they did a sort of a podcast together. And it was literally that sort of dry, awkward humor back and forth for about, for about an hour. 
um, and they needed. And didn't they pose as like a Vogue magazine yeah. as well? They were like kind of doing spoof things of of media covers and all yeah. that. Yeah. So so this 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 is um, in line with Drake's media philosophy, almost you could and say. Then, and the, the um, Bob, Bobby was obviously a good like vehicle for that. Yeah. I mean, the most recent one that he did was. Um, or the one that I can remember that, that's most recent is was another one with Bar, Barstool Sports with your man Caleb. Um, and it was exactly that. He just didn't answer any of the questions seriously. Caleb wasn't ask, asking anything necessarily seriously. They had his friend the, the in the middle um, who was just kind of eating ice cream the entire time and, and playing into all these gags and jokes. So, like, I think it definitely plays into this character. If you look at, like, what maybe what type of strings is Bobby trying to do? It could necessarily be get me back into headlines and try and see if I can drum up some more, um, some more kind of uh, people who are, would be noteworthy to come onto the podcast. Uh, there was something though. The same day that she took down all of these things, she also posted a a, a clip of her at a Drake concert, and the whole idea yes. of her was like kind of crossing her arms looking unimpressed. yeah completely disinterested as everybody else was falling over yeah and i i think that i think her posting that is a bit tongue-in-cheek to be like you know i know what i'm doing here um a lot of people have criticized the idea that you could start a podcast and very quickly have these big names almost this idea of like she doesn't deserve it you know there's there's been people i don't know in the irish podcast scene who are talking to people from the journal working their bollocks off um but there there is that kind of idea that it's undeserved and i'm, I'm not sure about about that one way or the other certainly there is probably people who are more deserving of a drake interview and maybe people who could land the plane a bit better. But by the same token, um, if you just have the balls, evidently that's what Bobby is saying, that she just had the gumption to ask a couple of these big names when they interacted with her TikTok page to do a podcast, then, you know, maybe maybe that's the... Um, uh, maybe that's the thing to to just go and yeah, ask. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we've talked about uh, previously behind the scenes, where you've like you've told me about just sending off an email and seeing what happens, and a lot of that it plays into my job as well. Um, if if I don't if I can't necessarily contact a press office to be like, hello, can I speak to this minister? I'll have to go around and try and find out will this person give me a quote, and that that is in the in the entertainment scene that can be a lot more difficult because these people are don't necessarily want to talk to press. They don't necessarily want to interact with the public in a way that might like, you know, tarnish their image or change what the public opinion is about them. And they never want to work to your timeline Precisely. is one of the biggest yeah. ones. So like, I think um, it is, you're able to do it by yourself, uh, but especially in the scene that she's in, in this sort of entertainment music, high, high celebrity lifestyle, um, it is a little bit more difficult. So there's definitely some sort of really good networking skills or someone who is also helping her behind the scenes uh, to, to kind of bag. It's, yeah, you're right. It's infinitely more difficult. Like uh, just to give insight, there are names who are big in the UK and Ireland kind of world, celebrity world. And if you email their office, even from say a program like this or just a, a normal radio show, you'll hear something back. It could be a polite version of fuck off, but you, you will hear something back because they will, you know, uh, see you as, as somebody worth responding 
to, roughly speaking. But if you are to then go over to the States and contact Drake's people or any of those big celebrities, you will never hear anything. God knows if they ever opened it, if 10 people opened it and, you know, went from one office to the other to the other and eventually the 10th person decided, no, we're not going to interact with this. But you're right, to get to that Drake level, it requires a hell of a lot more work um, and contacts and influence than most uh, interviews or, you know, radio or podcast segments you would see day to day. So I suppose she, she definitely has to be given some credit for that. Um, and yeah, we will see where it all goes. I think she has a bit of that P.T. Barnum in her, that kind of showmanship. Um, and, you know, if we're talking about her, it's obviously, a, you know, a very good step for her. Um, Marish, thanks so much as always for taking the time. Hopefully you find something to spend with your, you know, to buy with your Bank of Ireland millions. I mean, I hope so. I'll probably, uh, I'll probably buy a podcast equipment and then um, I'll just like start maybe getting on some other journalists, uh, some other kind of high life celebrities. And then uh, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Contact my press guy. We'll see what we can do for you. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Two years ago, my next guest became a free man for the first time in 19 years after serving 19 of a 32 year sentence. Since then, he has become a media sensation, garnering over a million followers on TikTok as he recounts his experiences in prison and promotes his nonprofit Second Chancer Foundation. Jesse, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. It's good to be here. It's a fantastic story with so many highs and lows and ups and downs. We were just talking about one of your, um, I suppose, ups and downs there out of prison, which is this motorbike accident you found yourself in. Why motorbikes? I've loved motorcycles since I was a kid. I've always loved martial arts. I love motorcycles. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents would drop me off at this neighborhood every summer because they had a pool or there was stuff to do. And all the kids in the neighborhood had motorcycles from the ages of like five and six. And I always wanted a dirt bike. So when I was old enough to get one, that was all I wanted. I you know saved up money and then they ended up getting me one for Christmas and I loved it. So then when I turned 17, I found a, a motorcycle that was not legal and I didn't have a license. And I rode that until I ended up getting locked up. And I always said all those years inside that once I got out, the ultimate feeling of freedom is being on the open road with no cage or no box around me. And so as soon as I was able, I bought a bike and I rode pretty much every day, even through the winter, even through ice and snow when I shouldn't have been on the bike. And I love it so much. But what I realized was, you know, these past few weeks, I've been kind of stressed and drawn thin and my mental energy hasn't been there. And I can't afford to be on a motorcycle and not be fully present. So it was a good reminder to wake up to slow down and recognize that I'm really lucky to be here. But uh, I, I still love bikes. I'm not sure if I'm going to ride again, but I, I probably. It's a good um, entry point into your childhood, really, because I've been trying to make sense of it. Firstly, your mother was a lawyer your f and your parents, to an extent, seemed quite present. But by the same token, they had a couple of their own issues and ultimately when we kind of map out to that age of 17 or 18, when you hang around with the wrong crowd and get, you know, kind of into all this trouble, it strikes me that maybe they were a small bit kind of laissez-faire. I don't want to say asleep at the wheel, but I don't know. There's this juxtaposition in your childhood. Very much so. And it was very much a difference between my mother and father. Um, in the beginning, my mother was kind of the primary caretaker because my dad was working and he was going to grad school. But also, I mean, they were both getting high and drinking until I was two. So like they were for those years, not present and not responsible. But when they when they kind of changed their lives, it became kind of fanatical. And I think my dad probably more than my mom. And one of the things I was talking about somebody about today was that from an early age, I mean, literally from a child, I was told like, hey, you're a drug addict. You got to be careful, like long before I'd ever tried anything or done anything. And that was really drilled into my head. And I think that definitely influenced my later relationship with substances. 
but yeah, I mean, I think that my mother's response was to kind of let loose and trust. And my dad's response was to try to tightly control. And uh, they got divorced when I was seven. So I was going between house to house and my dad's house, things were much more tightly run. My mom's, they were much more loose. But when my dad found out that I was getting high at 16, he kicked me out. He said, hey, I'm a recovering addict. I can't live with anybody who's smoking marijuana. Like, you have to get out of my house. My mom's response to that was anger. And she just didn't have the time or the resources or maybe the inclination to really be there and create structure. So I did kind of start running wild, working at a restaurant and, you know, staying in town in the middle of the night and doing all the things that were probably not responsible in hindsight. But I, again, you know, I, I think they did the best they could, but I think that they hadn't always received the support or the guidance or necessarily the lessons they needed to learn in life. So they didn't have that to pass on. And it's fair to say cocaine is a hell of a drug. You know, there's a reason why it's known far and, and wide and people absolutely um, adore it while they're in that kind of honeymoon phase with it. Can you tell me about the, I don't know, the, the passion, the pleasure of that phase from 16 or 17 to 18 before, you know, you started down on the downslide and, and your world kind of imploded. There must have been some great memories there and a lot of fun living life in the fast lane. You know, I, I didn't do cocaine until I was 17. I didn't even start drinking and smoking pot really until I was 16. Um, but I do. I remember the first time I did cocaine feeling like this is what I've been looking for. Because my whole life I'd had this great sense of insecurity or self-doubt or worry or you know, social anxiety. And all of a sudden, one line of cocaine, and I felt like Superman. I felt like I was on top of the world. And there were some fun times and some adventures and time with pretty women. And But the reality is that was a very short chapter. Like that happened, but very quickly it was no longer, oh, I'm getting high to have fun. It's, oh my God, I need to get high so I'm not in pain. I'm not in misery. I'm not chasing this, this, this feeling of like being okay. Because it was no longer getting high after a few days or even a few weeks. It was, I, I need this to not be miserable. I need this to not be suffering and not be like, consumed by this black cloud. You must have made a real connection with Coke, though, because a lot of people say the first while they do it, it doesn't really click. And then, you know, a couple couple of lines in, that's when the kind of eureka moment happens. No, for me, it was instantaneous. I had, I briefly had like a couple uh, where I would get a little bit. But uh, when I graduated from high school, I started working construction. And the guy who was driving me to and from the jobs every day was a Coke dealer. And so it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to start doing cocaine and do it on the weekend. No, I started from day one and did it every day until I went to jail. There was no real progression there. It was kind of whack bang straight in the middle of it. Exactly. So now let me let me kind of go to a darker chapter, which is when the drugs start to wear off, as you mentioned, and ultimately you get raided by a SWAT team and um, thrown in front of a judge. Give us some insight into that. Yeah, I mean... You, you talk about the drugs wearing off. And what I felt was I had gone in a period of three months from being a kid taking a year off before college who wasn't necessarily making the best decisions as far as drinking or, or smoking pot, but like was a kid. And then within three months, I felt like a feral animal. And my number one drive was to get more. Just like an animal will do anything to survive, I felt like I would do anything to get more cocaine. And so we ended up committing a robbery, which was intended as a breaking and entering, but it didn't matter. Like somebody ended up being there, so we committed a robbery. I ended up committing a shooting where two guys had threatened my friend's girlfriend, and I interceded. And even though I tried to leave, again, like I put myself in that situation. So I had created this total sense of chaos around the paranoia of cocaine, the drive to get more, and just this feeling of like needing to find some kind of meaningful role in this shame that I felt because everything that I was doing felt negative, felt shameful, it felt ugly. And so in trying to be the hero that night, I was trying to find some sense of redemption. And instead, I ended up causing infinitely more harm. And the, the shooting itself, I mean, uh, you'll be shocked to know that I myself am into jailbird and many of our listeners aren't a jailbird. So they haven't been in the position where you're being pursued by another car. Uh, the person reaches back, you think they're going for a gun and you have to make a decision. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, again, I shouldn't have been in that position in the first place uh, for anybody who does find themselves in that position. Let me put it, it's so funny because I, I do a lot of criminal justice reform work. I'm very critical of a lot of police agencies, but police shootings are one of the few areas where I understand because I remember that sheer terror and the lack of control. And it's, it's, I don't care how much training somebody's had. It's not like a movie where you like calmly draw down on your enemy and have a, like, no, you're screaming and you're crying and you're terrified and you're shaking. And that's what I remember. And yeah, it was, it was a horrible experience. And I remember feeling even more horrible afterwards because one, I felt like gracious to be alive. I felt terrified that I'd killed them. I felt all this mix of emotions. And on top of that, again, that guilt and that shame, because why was I there in the first place? Why did I make that decision? Yes. And, and one of the reasons I think why we're both so okay talking about these things and i don't want to say glamorizing it but at least indulging in some of the the kind of madness that it is is because you paid such a hefty price for those reckless actions so you then as i mentioned you get raided by a swat team thrown in front of a judge and handed a sentence that no one would have predicted no at the so after i pleaded guilty to the charges and went through all the processes uh the sentencing guidelines called for from eight to 13 years and I remember my lawyer being really helpful because he sat me down. He actually gave me Nelson Mandela's autobiography. And he basically said, look, this guy did nothing wrong. And he spent 28 years in prison. You did a lot of stuff wrong. Like you're going to get 10 years and you need it. Like you deserve it. And that made me understand it in a way where I wasn't feeling sorry for myself and I wasn't justifying. I was like, you know what? He's absolutely right. I need to find a way to get through this. And then the day of sentencing, the first motion by the Commonwealth was to change the sentencing guidelines from eight to 13 years to 10 to 16 or 16 and a half. Um, and my lawyer said, look, let's not object. He's seen the old guidelines. We might be able to win the objection, but it's probably just going to piss the judge off. And then at the actual time of sentencing, after all the statements and all the, uh, the procedures, the judge just started reading out sentences. He would say 10 years with five suspended and 20 years with 20 suspended and all the way down the line for all 12 charges. And at the end, I had done the math in my head, but nobody else had. So my lawyer asked, you know, your honor, like, what, what is the final sentence? What did you give him? And the judge actually said, I don't know. Like, I just told you. The court reporter had to read it back, and the total sentence was 138 years with 106 suspended, which was an active sentence of 32 years. Yes. So, I mean, shock and awe on, I say, many people's faces, including some of your loved ones. Yeah, definitely the faces of my loved ones. Even the Commonwealth looked shocked. Like, even he couldn't believe that I'd gotten that much time. Um, and I, rem I remember there's one particular face. It was a, the brother of a, a good friend of mine. And he just, his jaw had dropped almost like a comic. And I just, I remember looking at him and trying to kind of smile and be like, it's going to be okay when inside. That wasn't what I was feeling at all. Yeah, well, that's a crazy this... reaction. I must say, if someone sentenced me to 32 years, uh, my immediate reaction wouldn't be to make other people feel better about it. So obviously there's something there within you that likes to, and perhaps because of your, you know, your parents as well, that likes to kind of placate others. There's definitely a, a great deal of codependence that has played into my story. And it is, you know, if, if we want to touch on that for a second, what I learned at an early age through seeing the chaos and through seeing a mother that was in many cases out of control or, uh, you know, after my dad left was essentially just like wouldn't get out of bed, was just severely depressed, was that it was my job to make other people feel OK, that I had to find a way to make mom OK or I had to find a way to make somebody else OK. And so I would go through life doing that, like trying to meet everybody else's needs, but then somehow expecting other people to know and meet my own needs, which led me to then be resentful because, hey, why aren't these people doing this for me? And it was a cycle that I entirely created myself of me showing up for other people and expecting them to show up for me, then me being resentful and being entirely selfish and then feeling guilty and going back to the codependence. So I think that's a perfect example of it because 
as much as I was feeling in that moment, this sense of shame. And I think it actually contributed to that because the underlying issue was like worthlessness, that I was somehow fundamentally broken and worthless. So in that moment, the judge had just told me, you are beyond redemption. Like you are broken and you are worthless to society. So the least I could do was show up for somebody else. The least I could do was tell him like, hey, it's going to be okay. Because I knew that I had no value. Like maybe I could be a value to somebody else. Yes. I still, I think one of the most shocking parts of your story, to be honest with you, because in that moment, someone sentences me to 32 years in prison. It's about me. I'm the main character. This is my moment. Uh, But moving on, you know, so obviously you're shuttled away then to uh, prison. And I thought one of the interesting things as well is there's this idea in popular culture that you only do two days in prison, the day you go in and the day you leave. Is that a myth? Is that true? Uh, Yeah, that's something that doesn't resonate with me. Um, You know, I think because of the length of my sentence, it took me a couple of years to really make peace with it and come to terms with it because I felt sorry for myself. It's really interesting because after the accident, it was a little bit of the same thing of as much as I had support, as much as I was grateful to be alive and and be, you know, essentially mobile, um, I was feeling sorry for myself. And I gave up on structure and I gave up on meaningful things. And I just kind of laid there in a puddle of self-pity. And that's what I did for the first, you know, six months in jail, where I just laid there in a puddle of self-pity and felt sorry for myself. But it was once I was in prison and I started realizing like, hey, I have the opportunity to make an impact. I can better myself. I can get an education. I can help other people. I can tutor other people. I can show up and make somebody laugh. I can show up and, you know, change somebody's day. That allowed me to build the structure to where I had a life in prison. Like I was far happier in prison once I kind of got into the stride of my life than I had ever been on the street because I had a meaningful existence. I was helping other people. I was doing things that I thought were important. And I didn't want to be there, but I'm even more than not wanting to be there was this sense of like, hey, I have value. Like I am of value to myself and to the people around me. And that's what I'd always been looking for. You had a life, but not only a life, you had a business. Tell me about some of the hustles you were running inside prison. So mostly I tried to do like legitimate work because I was really lucky to be able to get a bunch of different jobs. But I ran uh, apple pies. I had a buddy who had done a bunch of time up in the mountains. He had actually tried to escape and then tried to escape from the supermax and just this whole crazy story. And he had never had family support. So he had to run parlays, which are like gambling organizations. Uh, He had to make apple pies where we would like smuggle all the apples and butter back from the chow hall, cook them up and then sell them to people. Um, So the apple pie was really big. When he ran the parlay, at one point I did a UFC parlay because I don't watch normal sports, but I love MMA. So I put this ticket together and it was like the most unbeatable ticket on the odds because nobody had done one before. Who was who was on the ticket? Who was fighting? I can't remember. It was one of the undercards on Fox. Okay. Um, Uh, What what year would this? This is well before McGregor. Is this more like Brock Lesnar kind of days? This would have been actually it could have been it would probably would have been right after Brock Lesnar. This might have been like. 2016, 2017. So I guess McGregor was around, but he he still wasn't the name yet that he that he had been. But I remember you had to not only pick the fighter, but you had to pick the way they would win, either by TKO, by submission, or by decision. So statistically, it was impossible to hit. But we brought in like $400 on this ticket. I was like, this is great. We're going to go. And somebody hit. Like somebody had a statistical impossibility. I remember the last fight, it was um, it was one of the big heavyweights. And he uh, Verdun was beating Travis Brown, I think. And he was beating him so badly that there was no way he should still be standing. And the guy had picked that Verdun was going to win by decision. And all I needed him to do was knock him out or submit him. And instead, he beat him mercilessly for five rounds and he never went down. And I was like, please just lose. Instead of winning $400, we end up basically having to pay out the whole pot. And I think an extra $20 or something on top of that. I just remember being shocked that somebody hit an impossible ticket. 
it. But that, that was your short, short-lived short venture into bookmaking. A dif- that was the last time. A difficult <laughs> profession, no doubt. Uh, tell me as well, you got into a relationship while in prison, which is one of these things that us lay people hear. And it's kind of incredible that, you know, there's people out there uh, in the real world who struggle to get into relationships, but somebody behind bars might have more success than people out in the real world. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would define it as success, but I, I was in a number of relationships. And what I found the real defining characteristic were is that there were people who wanted emotional intimacy that didn't necessarily want or didn't necessarily prioritize physical intimacy. So someone who'd been in an abusive relationship or someone who was had a personality disorder and couldn't actually be proximate to somebody in a relationship was looking for that connection. And a person in prison provides a perfect opportunity for that because we have a lot of time and we have a lot of energy and we can devote that to another person. Because of all the things in my life, when this beautiful woman shows up writing me from Egypt and then ends up moving close to me and ends up coming to visit me every other weekend, there's nothing in my life that can compare to that. Or when Courtney and I got into a relationship, I'm living in a dormitory where you don't even have privacy when you use the bathroom and it's horrible and it's loud. Like nothing in my life can compare to her. So of course she gets all of my attention and all of my energy and all of my love and creativity. And I think that's intoxicating. It's it's kind of like finding a person on the street who almost like worships you or elevates you above other people, especially when your alternative is like crappy dates on the street where somebody shows up and has this buffet mentality of like, oh, you're great, but I'm going to find somebody else on Tinder or like maybe I'll call you next week versus somebody who's like, hey, I think you're amazing. I love you. I want to be with you. Um, and yeah, I would say at least a quarter, maybe even half of people I know are in relationships with people in prison. You're over in Ireland. What's fascinating to me is how many people are in relationships with women in Europe because there are different laws around access to prisoners and writing prisoners, especially in Germany. So they end up writing Americans and they're in these long distance relationships where they never meet. That's, uh, that is truly incredible. You, you know, you mentioned the uh, lady from, uh, from Egypt and a few others like that. Did, did you get a picture um, sent through or, or how, how does that work? Because obviously when you're in prison, looks aren't everything, but you're still a cold blooded man at the end oh. of the day. Oh, absolutely. So the way that relationship, for example, and, and several others happened was I would do a pen pal ad on write a prisoner or prisoner connect. And so I put in a picture and a bio and what I'm looking for. And I put it up and it's essentially like a classified ad for a person. And then people would write me and sometimes it would be, you know, something great. Sometimes not. Sometimes it would come with a picture, sometimes not. But I remember that particular letter before I even saw the picture was amazing. It was the most amazing letter I still to this day I've ever gotten of like, this person is beautiful. She's smart. She's she was in a dual master's program. She was passionate about, you know, all these things in her life. She was passionate about fitness. She was passionate about social justice. And then when I did see the picture, I was like, damn, she's actually really attractive too. Um, and then back, that was right when they had started uh, doing JPay, which was the four pay kiosk. So you could do email. Like we didn't have any regular internet access, but you could have email. If somebody signed up for yours, you could email them and they could email you and they could send pictures. So rather than having to wait a month for these letters to and from Egypt, all of a sudden I could get the letter or the email and the pictures the next day or two days later. And that was amazing because I got this beautiful, smart woman in Egypt sending me all these pictures and showing me her adventures. And yeah, I mean, I was smitten immediately. Talk about a parlay. You know, you mentioned the other fella hitting the impossible parlay. You must have gone through that and gone really smart, really a, a fantastic communicator, um, you know, tick, tick, tick. And she's beautiful. Uh, jackpot. Yeah, I, I absolutely did. And of course, things are not always what they seem. And that ended up being probably one of the most toxic, unhealthy, destructive relationships in my life. Uh, because as I mentioned, some people are there because they can't actually be proximate to somebody in a relationship. And that was her situation. Yes, that, um, that would be something I would certainly think about. Even if you hit that parlay, tick, 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 you would think, 
why are you messaging me on a prisoner exactly. service rather than in a speed dating environment, a Tinder, a Bumble, Match.com, any of these? Um, yeah. yeah, I certainly would have some red flags. Even if I was in, incarcerated, I'd probably be thinking there's better out there. Well, and I knew there was, mm. but at the same time, I was so desperate to believe that there was somebody who could love me or that I wasn't, again, beyond being loved or beyond redemption that I jumped on without really thinking about it. And that experience was so traumatic that it caused me to then be more cautious in the future. And I had different relationships after that. And I did kind of like keep people at arm's length or recognize these patterns of, of unhealthy behavior or toxic behavior. But at the time, it was the first time in years that I had felt loved, the first time I had felt like someone was that interested in me. And I just threw myself head first and didn't really think about the consequences. Yeah, and I mean, pretty understandable. If you're locked in uh, in a metal box with a load of other guys, I can understand why <laughs> any woman that comes along, you're, you know, straight signed up. The American prison system, interesting topic as well, because um, obviously I mentioned we're over here in Ireland and I know the Irish prison system, or at least a little of it, um, and certainly if you're, say, gang affiliated, if you're in a gang or whatever, they will go out of their way to put you in a special wing with other gang members. And if they know that, for example, say you, Jesse, have a problem with another guy, they'll put you in a different prison or a different wing. And apparently they are very good at weeding out conflict and just basically trying to get everybody to get along and, you know, reduce, reduce conflict. From what we've seen in television programs and stuff like that, the American prison system seems less forgiving. Is that the case or what was your experience? I can't speak for the entire system. I know like in California, the cells have all been racially segregated for years, although they're trying to change that. In Virginia, the first prison, the first major prison I went to, you had no say in your cell assignment. And they would regularly put Bloods and Crips and GDs and Latin Kings. They would put guys together that shouldn't have been together. And they basically said, if you got a problem, you deal with it. Or you can put in a move and maybe six weeks or six months later, we'll move you. But oftentimes they would out of spite, move them into the very same situation, just with a different person. Now, when I got down to Buckingham, which was a level three, which where I spent 13 of the 19 years, they were a lot more reasonable. Like they would take into account, okay, does this need to happen? And there was a, uh, when I first got there, the leader for the Bloods and the leader for the Crips actually lived in the same pod and they were friendly. And the captain, every time there was an issue, like there's a big gang fighter issue, he would call them over there and say, hey, what do we need to do? Like, how do we resolve this? How do we get through this? And they were really reasonable. But at the higher level and then again at the lower level, there was no consideration of that whatsoever. And there was a ridiculous amount of violence and problems and drama behind the fact that they wouldn't just do something to separate people or to accommodate some really basic needs. Which is why on August 2021, it must have made it so much more sweet when you were told out of the blue that it was time to go home. Yeah. I mean, that was 10 months after I'd been transferred from a single cell in an honor pod where I had a dog, like everything was set up to this horrible you had a dog. environment. Well, we, so we had a dog program. And so I got to play with Quinn every morning. So Quinn was the kind of like pod dog. And he was, we were basically, they would train dogs that were, um, that had been abused or neglected to try to get them prepared for adoption. Some even became service dogs, some became rescue dogs. And it was basically like broken people trying to help heal broken animals. And it was a really that's incredible because I must say, and it's probably come across, my idea of the American prison system is quite tough. Uh, steel boxes, bloods, crypts, people shanking each other. But you're painting this brilliant picture of apple pies and dogs and everything. I think I think it can be both. I mean, because the dog program was only in the honor pod, which was 32 cells out of 1,100 to 1,200 people, depending on population statistics. And I had to wait 12 years of perfect behavior to get in there. So it wasn't something that was available to most people. And had I gotten a charge or had I lost a job or had anything happened, I wouldn't have ever made it in there. There were no dogs. There were no back porches. There was no any of that anywhere else in the prison. Um, 
But I've also found, I mean, there really is this dichotomy. You'll have these moments of levity and people eating together and people laughing together. And then these moments of intense violence. And I think more of it is actually on the side of people trying to make the best of it or it being kind of like quiet or at least peaceful. And the violence and the craziness was more rare, but that made it all the more profound, I guess. Because if you know every Friday there's going to be a horrible gang fight, you can prepare for that. But if you don't know if it's going to be this Friday or next Friday or today or tomorrow or the next five days in a row, there's really no way to prepare you know, your mind or even your nervous system for how to deal with that. And it creates a sense of constant tension and constant stress. Then you add in things like, you know, 120 degrees in the in the pod because we don't have air conditioning and you have this concrete building just trapping heat or some other just horrible condition. Yeah, it, it contributes to it. Um, so, yeah, I think in a weird way, it's kind of both. Mm, yeah, certainly. I don't maybe I won't be booking a ticket then after all. But as I mentioned, August 2021, you get the call. Time to go home. I mean, absolute elation. It must have been. Yeah, I mean, it, it was elation, but it was also shock. I, when I first, when they first told me and I kind of like hit a knee and started like tearing up, the questions came into my mind, like, is this a trick? Is it a mistake? Are they going to change their minds? And so I went back and uh, there was a young kid in the pod who didn't have anything. He had no family on the outside. So I called him over and I gave him my shoes and my food and my hygiene. I said, look, I may have to come back. And if I do, I need this back, but otherwise I want you to have this. And actually when I went to go sign the paperwork, because the first thing they did was rush me to the admin building to sign the paperwork for my pardon. And they said, hey, like we got a problem. Like we got to get this signed and we got to get your mother here because she doesn't get here on time. We can't release you. And so after believing like maybe they made a mistake, I was thinking, oh God, they're going to change their mind. Like, what am I going to do? But it was just a whirlwind of an hour and a half of signing paperwork and then going back and giving the rest of my stuff away and being told I was going to get a charge for giving the rest of my stuff away and being like, how are you going to charge me if I'm going It's like a fucked up reality TV show, isn't it? Oh, it's insane. Uh, But yeah, an hour and a half later, it became real because I actually walked past the sign that says no inmates past this point. And I remember like stopping for a second and the guy said, are you okay? I'm carrying this box. And I was like, no, I just walk like I'm not an inmate anymore. I just walk past a sign you can't walk past. And I walked into the front building and I had to fill out paperwork. And there was my mother sitting 10 feet away. And I had to finish all this paperwork for 15 minutes. And I was able to go over and give her a hug for the first time in a year and a half because there'd been no visits during COVID. Incredible. Um, and, And since then, you have begun to forge your life and done a lot, it must be said, in in the two years since. So you've started a nonprofit. But I think um, bigger than that is this following you've built across a load of platforms, but especially TikTok, as people tune into your stories about prison, uh, some of the advice you give and just kind of general life updates. Yeah, it's it's been amazing because, you know, I went from complete anonymity and obscurity to being literally a number like I was crossing or I was 108-6343. That was the only thing anybody called me to all of a sudden being on a stage or what feels like a stage and interacting with people and getting hundreds of messages and thousands of comments and being asked to come speak different places. And it's the most bizarre transition ever because it really is like from being in a cave to like being out in the world and, and on a big screen. Um and it's been wonderful. It's also been terrifying. It's also created undue like pressure because I feel like an obligation, but it's created the opportunity for me to make an impact in other people's lives. And it's created the opportunity for me to have a, a path in my life that I never could have imagined. And I mean, talk about inflicting a monsoon upon yourself because social media and phones and all of that would be less so in prison. I believe you can still get access to them, but certainly you wouldn't be using them that to the same extent that a general lay person would, I assume, just out in the world. And so you go from not using your phone that much to suddenly uh, it's essentially your career. You know, you're kind of plastered all over TikTok. Uh, yeah, talk about a juxtaposition. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't be. And I mean, when I went to prison, there was no Facebook, there was no YouTube, Amazon only sold books, like, none of this was a thing. And inside, you did have illicit cell phones that were around sometimes. 
but I definitely wasn't making videos or posting anything about myself or doing anything. So to then go and yeah, be glued to my phone. Cause one of the first things I noticed was two weeks before I made any posts on social media. And during that two weeks, every room I walked into, everybody was sitting down looking at their phone. And I was like, what is wrong with y'all? There's, there's a world out here and there are people to talk to and there are things to do. And then after that two weeks, when those comments started coming in and the, the requests started coming in, all of a sudden I'm the same person glued to my phone. And it was just, it went from being like in a dark place to being completely free and amazed at the world to like going in a weird way back to like this kind of like closed in environment where I'm just connected in all the time. Yeah, social media is a hell of a drug, but you've harnessed it quite well and you've got this um, non-for-profit and, and uh, you know, we mentioned the motorbike stuff. So you're kind of cramming a lot in the two years. I was thinking, you know, while you were in prison and obviously you didn't think you would get out in 2021, but was there a bucket list of things you were hoping to get done whenever you got out of prison? Yeah. So back then it was, it was a lot shorter because one of the, the good things, but also the, the kind of curses of prison is all I thought about was getting out. Like I hadn't really thought past that. So part of the thing about the day I got out was like, well, what do I do now? Like all I've been working toward to up till now is getting out. But there was a hike that I wanted to do, which was where I actually made my first, first post. And it was, you know, up this, this side of a mountain and it's just beautiful view. And I knew that would be a place that I could go and kind of like set down some of the trauma or set down some of the past. And again, I made that first video and that went viral. I said I was going to go up there and eat Chinese food. I said I was going to go out there and do all these things. I really wanted to get a motorcycle. Like That was important to me. At some point, I want to go back to grad school uh, because I want to get a counseling degree. I want to get a degree in psychology and figure out a way that I can either work with individuals or I can work with groups and try to create programming that will make an impact on people's lives because I realized just how much of a difference it made for me. Um, so I've accomplished, you know, two of the three and I haven't gone back to grad school because things are so busy and crazy. And, you know, our system is kind of messed up. Um, I'm not actually sure how it is in Ireland, but like if I go to a master's program, I have to pay for that. So I would have to figure out a way to work full time and pay for the master's program. If I go to a doctorate, they'll give me a stipend. But like I was looking into the program at Stanford, which is the most expensive zip code in America. And they give you like $22,000 a year in a stipend. Like I can't live on that. So how do I find that balance and what does it look like to go back to school? Uh, but eventually that's where I feel like the path that will allow me to have the biggest impact is. Final question, uh, a bit cliche, but I think it's worth touching on. When you think about uh, your your years in prison and um, even maybe the stuff that led to the prison um, incident, are you, do you have any regrets or are you happy that you went through that experience to ultimately end where you are now? No, looking back, obviously I would never want to cause the harm that I did or inflict the pain that I did on other people. That's what I still feel the most, you know, kind of sadness or guilt about. Um, but yeah, I never would have chosen the path of prison. It's not the place I would have wanted to go, but who I am today is something that I never imagined. Like I'm actually happy with who I am. I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of the things that I'm doing. And I never imagined that would be possible. So whatever path got me here, including the path of prison, I'm grateful for because it got me to a place where I'm at peace in a way that I never have been. That's fantastic. And it's been very illuminating to talk to you, Jesse. If people are looking to get more involved in your story, they can go over your, to your TikTok, which is Jesse Crosson on TikTok. Uh, you also have the Second Chancellor Foundation, which is a non-for-profit. Uh, fantastic to talk to you, Jesse. Thank you, sir. Well, thanks so much as always for joining me on this inevitable roller coaster up and down, left and right, through the news cycle, through the American judicial system, and um, a five-a-side league over in Spain. Fantastic. And thanks to Dermot, to Murish, and to Jesse all for taking their time. Fantastic as always. Hopefully we will see you next week.